week's episode of the Higher Ed Shift, Carlo and I discussed the student loan payment restart scheduled for this January. With just three months until 40 million student loan borrowers are expected to start making their payments again, we still do not have a comprehensive plan from the Department of Education on how students will be communicated to and will re-enter repayment. A recent Freedom of Information request has brought to light some internal memos between the department and the loan servicers that provides a small window into what the future may look like. Join us as we jump into the conversation and unpack the information we have learned within those memos. Hello and welcome back to the Higher Ed Shift. I am Amy Glynn, VP of Student Financial Success and have back with me after a, what feels like lengthy absence, Carlos Salerno, our VP of Research and an Education Economist. Thanks for coming back. Well, Amy, it's always good to be back here and feel like an age since I've been here. That's right. I mean, did, did I do something wrong? Is that what the absence was about? No, you know, I was just on travel, seeing all the different parts of the country, traveling to COVID hotspots, traveling to cool fall weather, you know, just kind of getting out and doing my thing. All right. Okay. As long as, as long as we don't have to have a a tough conversation, that makes me, that makes (laughs) me happy. If it means anything, I miss these things. (laughs) It does. That makes me feel good. I miss having you. A couple of weeks ago, we started to see in some of the the national media in particular in Politico about some of the plans that the Department of Education may may be initiating as we come into loan repayments starting for our student borrowers in January. So we have um, close to 40 million borrowers that are getting ready to come have student loan payments just come due again starting in January. And really up until this point, the department has been pretty silent about what the the process will look like for our student borrowers and what plan we have to educate them. Politico, I believe, reported on a freedom of information request where we got some of the internal documentation and communication between the Department of Education and loan servicers in particular. And it really started to to shed some light on some of the plans they have. Can you maybe do a really quick summary, maybe the top five or six things that were, were included in that information release? One of the things that they had proposed doing was obviously increasing call center hours, assuming that people are going to have tons of questions, Mm -hmm. a, I believe, 90-day grace period they're going to put on the table for initially missed payments once everybody gets back in. And I think the plan would be to put, um, to automatically put those folks into forbearance instead. There is, oh, one of the big features I think is letting Income-driven repayment borrowers self-certify by phone. I believe this is just a one-off they're going to do, but I think the idea was that they could, uh, they would let people one time be able to call in, 
certify their income as a way to uh, expedite their ability to make sure they stay in income-driven repayment. Mm-hmm. I think they were going to um, automatically pull every borrower that was in default out, which another is another big one because there's got to be at least more than a million borrowers that are probably were registered in default pre-pandemic. And I think the idea is to give all of them a new fresh start. Um, and then I think the last big component, if I remember in that request, is that they were going to, the, the one thing that, that people would have to do is re-opt back into any auto pays that they had set up. I think the department did not want to assume uh, that they should just keep pulling people's money out of their account without their permission. And so that is the one thing where I think people did have to go back in. I think they're planning on having to go back in and re-opt in. So those are the big pieces, if I remember. So. Yeah. And that, that last one totally makes sense to me. Right. Those, those auto withdrawals haven't happened in nearly two years. Let's make right. sure we've still got good bank account informations that individuals still want those payments and they remember what date they're, they're going to be pulled. No, you're right. And, and, and what you said actually brings up a really good point as well uh, because it's been two years and two years is a long time. And not only is it a long time for us to forget what our bank account information looks like in the state of our bank account, but people move, people change information. They, uh, they move to different addresses. And so I think a lot of people uh, who aren't familiar with the loan servicing world don't appreciate is that probably the bulk of loan servicing, especially with delinquent accounts, is tracking down the borrower, right? Oh, how much time and money do we spend skip tracing people? Exactly. That's exactly right. And so this two years of lost contact, I think one of the first big pitfalls or one of the first big challenges that the department and its loan servicers are going to face is actually finding all 40 million borrowers and getting them back into swimming to begin with. Well, it's ironic that you that you mentioned that because I can tell you at 11.09 this morning, I got a text message from Federal Student Aid reminding me that loan payments are going to start again, mine particularly on January 31st, and encouraging me to update my contact information. So the obviously getting good contact information with, with our borrowers is incredibly important. Now, I personally have not moved in the last two years, and I obviously still have the same phone number, hence the text message. But it's not the case for a lot of our borrowers. No, it's absolutely not. And again, I think if you go back to the bulk of the borrowers who may be anywhere from 25 to 40 years old, there's a lot of 25-year-olds who up and move. And like you said just now, right, um, you got a text message from your servicer encouraging you to get back into the swing of things. Well, there's going to be a lot of those text messages that are going to go to people and they're never going to receive them or they're never going to see them and they're not going to hear them because either they uh, spammed that number or it's not recognized or maybe they did actually move. And so this is just the first step. And I think that first step is what it's going to do is it's going to set up the servicers to realize just how many people uh, they don't even know where they are anymore. Yeah. No, I think that that's a real risk. And, and it's, it's part of the reason that I'm a little bit confused about why the department hasn't been more 
transparent and vocal earlier on about the shift to to restarting these student loan payments because I feel in addition to what servicers are doing, I feel like this is big enough. This should be a national media campaign. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think it should be more than a national media campaign. I mean, regardless, the Department of Education has known that at some point we were going to have to turn student loan payments back on. This is not a surprise. This is not something unexpected. We've known for a long time that at some point, 40 million people were going to have to start making payments again. And so you would think that I don't know, maybe there would have been a plan in place already. And not only would there be a plan in place, you know, that plan ought to be uh, articulated to the public because we're closing in on November and December. Payments are supposed to turn back on in less than three months. And the public hasn't heard a thing from the U.S. Department of Education about how uh, how this is all going to happen. And the frustrating thing is, is that we have to, our our journalists have to uh, FOIA the federal government to even find out this information. Well, and they're having the conversations. So why not get credit for the conversations you're having and the plans that you have in place? These two memos in particular that we're talking about, and I don't know if memo is the right word. It it seems to be um, guidance to the servicers about the changes that are going to be implemented so that they have time to to make those changes and the reporting changes. But those memos are are from August. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, it's almost Halloween here. So that seems like you've been doing stuff. You've been having conversations. Why not generate a little bit more transparency to the 40 million student loan borrowers that we have who are probably going to start to stress out really quickly about the payment that they have to start making again? Yeah. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that you either look at a situation like this and you think, hey, nobody's done any planning for something this big. And now we know from the FOIA request that that's not true. But the flip side of that coin is, is that, well, if you have been doing all of this planning, why are you keeping it from everybody? Why are you not sharing that information? Like you said, when nobody wants to talk about the student loan forgiveness debate that's sort of ridden alongside the loan repayment pause, but I can't possibly believe that the lack of communication, for example, has come from some wish or hope that all of these loans were just going to be canceled because that would be a crazy reason to pause or to prolong waiting to tell all these borrowers how to start paying their bills again. So are you suggesting that by making it publicly known that there is a legitimate plan to restart, that they're afraid potentially a backlash and the indication that loan forgiveness isn't going to happen or is off the table? I don't think that that's not the case (laughs) for as many negatives as I could throw in there. I was going to say, I feel like this just got uncomfortable. (laughs) No, I think, I mean... (laughs) It's a good question, but... We don't have the answer. We can only speculate. We don't have the answer and we can only speculate. But but again, I just don't see how, how you can possibly, you know, even, even with the, the promise or the potential for loan forgiveness, 
not be diligent to the taxpayers whose money you've lent out mm-hmm. and be about the plan for getting those dollars back. And I think it's important that we remember that while, while we care about students, borrowers being able to repay their loans, you know, at the end of the day, the Department of Education's responsibility is to the taxpayers' dollars that they lent out. Their goal is to give those dollars out, but also to get them back. And so while we need to protect the students, the department is also there to protect the taxpayers as well. I can appreciate that. Wow. Did we just agree on something? I feel like someone's saying I can appreciate that as like the lowest bar <laughs> of alignment that you can ask for. <laughs> it's not actually an endorsement. It is. <laughs> it's a recognition. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Let's dig in but a I think, little bit. You know, Oh, let's not. Yeah, like, go we're ahead. still going. No, no. I'll pause. I have lots to say. So go ahead. You just... We both do. <laughs> I, I was just suggesting that we maybe dig into a couple of the stipulations and that that are out there around the, the restart process and talk about potential impacts or outcomes of them. When I look at this, this, the students who are always at the the greatest financial risk and inability to pay are students are, are defaulters. Right. They've actively not been able or willing to pay for an extended period of time on their loans. And I know that as part of the legislation around the pauses, the payments during the, or the, the months during the payment, and I'm using air quotes for everybody who can't see me, the months that were part of the payment pause were actually able to count towards public service loan forgiveness, IDR plans, and even towards loan rehabilitation for our defaulted borrowers. So this, this clause that allows would potentially allow our defaulted borrowers to be returned to a good status. It feels like common sense with how the pauses have been written up until this point. I think that's fair. And I think that's right. I think that nobody out there wants to be a monster in this situation and would expect that all of those borrowers who were in default and then were hit with the COVID tragedy potentially uh, should be expected to stay in default. So giving everybody a fresh start probably makes sense. Being generous and sort of helping them get back on their feet probably makes sense. There are probably some people out there who are going to uh, wave a red flag and say that this will encourage more default behavior. But I don't know. I don't know that that's the case. This feels like probably an exceptional circumstance. That said, uh, one of the things that we know, and I can you know, full disclosure, I've spent time working in the student loan industry in the past, is that we know that people who are delinquent on their loans or who default on their loans very often continue to be delinquent on their loans. And even if you uh, rehabil- rehabilitate those loans, they're very likely to go back into default again. For all the effort and time that gets put into helping borrowers stay on track, borrowers who want to stay on track, stay on track. And borrowers who struggle to stay on track, even with a lot of help, struggle. They continue to struggle afterwards. They call them rolling delinquencies within the industry. They're those people who are delinquent and you bring them current and then they end up delinquent again. 
and you bring them current and the cycle goes on and on. And so I think while offering amnesty to the defaulters out there, is it going to solve the default problem? Probably not. In fact, probably what we're going to see is a lot of those defaulters, sadly, will probably end up back in default again. And if not, at least late stage delinquency before, um, you know, before long, I would imagine. I would like to see some evaluation done around and some auto matching around individuals who are receiving unemployment benefits to ensure that that these people are able to better utilize the the options available. But I also think that it would be more powerful, and I don't remember seeing anything about this. But this group of borrowers in particular should really be strongly encouraged to move into an IDR program. Because I wonder, of the students that default, how many of them would actually have a $0 payment if they were in IDR? Yeah, I don't have that data, but that's a good question. And yeah. You know, one of the things that we do know, if you look at the department's um, longitudinal data sets, is that defaulters, we, we all know that folks who default on their student loans uh, tend to have very low balances, but mm-hmm. low balances also mean that they have very low monthly payments, and yet they still default. And so I think one of the more recent stats that I saw uh, in this past month was that something like the median payment the median student loan payment of somebody who defaulted on their student loans and had debt but no degree was something like $72 a month, right? So roughly, like that's, I mean, that's not even a phone bill, right? For the most, for, for most of the major carriers. So to, the, to this point that the, that the payment itself is driving the default, mm-hmm. really sure. I don't, I think this is the big challenge with why people default on their student loans is we don't really know why people default on their student loans especially when we give them a lot of tools and resources to make uh, repayment as easy as possible. Yeah, I do think I I'm going to stick with I'm going to stick with my my guns on this one though that if we were able to allow or force is not the right word, encourage or facilitate these individuals into IDR, I wonder how many of them would be at a payment of 0. And I hear what you're saying about the low balance and the low payment amount, but would still like to offer these individuals as much protection as possible and as much flexibility as they get back on their feed. So speaking of IDR, one of the other clauses is this new option around potentially allowing borrowers to self-certify for a limited period of time. And I think this is more about administrative burden on servicers as well as the, the burden on individuals who have to self-certify, but allowing them, I'm, I'm sorry, that have to certify their income, but allowing them to self certify verbally income and household size to be able to determine these these payments. What are your thoughts there? Dangers, opportunities, risks? You just think it's amazing. You love it. It's perfect. (laughs) We should just keep it that way forever because everybody self-reports accurately. 
those are questions, everybody. I'm not stating Carlo's opinion. <laughs> oh, I was about to stop and just say, well, these are obviously Amy's correct opinions. Um, <laughs> no, I think, listen, the fact that it's a one-time window uh, reflects the fact that this is a procedural maneuver to help get people back on track. It's not policy, I think. If there's anything that we know from the history of the federal student loan program, it's that when uh, Congress gave borrowers the right to do forbearance by phone before in the old days, you had to fill out a form even to mm-hmm. get, but uh, once Congress allowed servicers to um, just simply call a struggling borrower and let them certify by certify by phone that they couldn't afford to make payments, that forbearance is shot through the roof. And we all know how that turned out. And so I think nobody wants to see that happen again. There's obviously challenges, like you said, with self-certifying. Some point, right, there's probably going to be a reconciliation. And if we if we end up self-certifying on January 31st, 2022, and on December 31st of 2022, there are massive discrepancies between what people say they earned and what they actually end up talking about the next time they have to certify, and it's not going to be verbal, uh, you're going to start running into a lot of additional problems that are just going to create more difficulties for these income-driven repayment borrowers who are supposed to be trying to make things easy for to begin with. Well, but what, are, what problems? Is it just going to be that if they inadvertently self-certify for a lower amount, that the payment takes a significant jump? Is that is that the biggest concern or problem? Yeah, I think that is the biggest concern because um, you can, sure, you can end up reducing your payment for another 12 months, but if you're artificially suppressing your income, and again, who knows that people will do this, but there's probably good evidence in other industries that when given this option, people probably will lowball their income, that when the time does come, uh, they're going to see payment leaps. They're going to see monthly payment leaps when they move from self-certifying by phone to actually having to provide more formal documentation. And that means that in some respects, while on the one hand, the self-certifying will help get everybody back, back into the system and back you know, paying again, in a year's time, chances are it's probably going to create a different layer of problems. So on balance, it's still probably a good thing, but in the long run, it's not going to be frictionless. There's still going to be an economic cost because I think eventually a lot of self-certifiers are going to see big payment hikes next year uh, as a result. Yeah. For me, I feel that that's a risk I'm willing. I mean, I'm not the decision maker that I'm willing to make, but I think if we can get the majority of borrowers to the point where servicers have good contact information and those individuals who are on IDR are having a conversation and self-certifying by phone, and we're talking about all of this happening, you know, in a relatively short period of time, Mm -hmm. I think that we will be exceedingly happy if we can make this actually happen because I'm not sure I don't remember seeing a timeline for the self-certification element but I can tell you I have personally certified my income for IDR in historical processes mm-hmm. 
and it was long. Right. I had to, I had to hand documents in months in advance and there was a lot of lead time. And so anything we can do to simplify this process while maintaining some level of, of a system and a process, I'm, I'm totally okay with reducing the burden as much as we can just to get good info, good contact info. Hey, listen, I, I, I do not disagree with you. (laughs) Um, But what I will say though, again, and I think it's important to keep in mind, we're talking about income-driven repayment as being this sort of solution for the struggling borrower. And let's not forget that at this moment, we have negotiated rulemaking going on to completely revamp income-driven repayment. And one of the reasons why it is part of negotiated rulemaking is because it's awful, because people don't like it, because the program from a logistical standpoint is really difficult to administer. So this idea of putting people into this program that we readily agree is so functionally broken that we have to redesign the rules in a specific negotiated rulemaking session, like that says a lot about what we're trying to help borrowers with. It's like it's like literally handing somebody uh, a, somebody who's drowning a life vest, but handing them like a weighted life vest, right? But uh-huh. them if you're giving them something that's going to sink them. And and I say this in jest, but I kind of don't because last week I think the Education Trust, for example, came out with a report that said that income-driven repayment, in particular, has become a debt sentence for minority borrowers. For example, in advocacy groups, left-leaning advocacy groups who are out there writing reports saying that income-driven repayment is not this great thing that we all thought it was going to be. And whether we agree with that or believe that or not isn't really important. What's important, though, is that there's a lot of conflict about how good income-driven repayment is to even begin with right now. And the fact that you have these groups saying these things and you have this negotiated rulemaking going on, Mm -hmm. that IDR isn't necessarily the great fix that it potentially could be. I agree that there are some fundamental challenges to the IDR program. I would potentially challenge though and say that even in its even in its broken, dare I say broken current position, it is still better for our low income postgraduates or our individuals with debt but no degree than a standard 10-year plan, which has zero flexibility. That's fair. I mean, a lower payment is always going to benefit somebody with lower income. That's right. Maybe not in the long run when it comes to how much you're paying in interest and, and fees and that nature, but in the short term, when my concern is how do I pay my rent, my power, my food, and, oh, I've got this, this burden of this student debt on top of it, it makes it a little bit more manageable, hopefully, though I understand there are only so far you can stretch your dollars. Yeah. Well, but I think that raises a good question as well, too, about... Um, whether, regardless of what people's feelings are about IDR, right? I think if you look at this sort of list of things that the department is talking about doing to get people back on track and 
And we've already talked about the fact that there hasn't even been a national announcement. Unless you were lucky enough to get an email or a text from your loan servicer, you haven't heard anything yet. I think, I, I think the, the more interesting question, since the department hasn't come out with a, a fully fleshed out publicly uh, presented plan, is can we be doing things better or easier? Are there better solutions and simpler ways of doing this? And I personally, because I wouldn't raise a question if I didn't have an answer, think there is. And I think the answer to that is like every single person who uh, leaves school with student loans gets a six-month grace period before they have to start repaying their loans. And so why aren't we just giving everybody a six-month grace period starting on January 31st and just restarting the clock the way we already start the clock for borrowers to begin with, right? I feel like we gave them a two-year grace period. We did, but we never told them when they had to start again. So if we didn't do that, the least we can do is say, hey, listen, like I'm going to give you a six-month clock. This is how things are going to start. And we just let the servicers do what they do for grace period anyway, which is they have a structured outreach strategy and they have a structured way of getting in touch with people and letting them know what their balance is and what their payments are going to be and to get ready for your payments. And here's all the tools that you need. Like servicers know how to do this already. They do this every single year for hundreds of thousands of new borrowers who come into the system. So I don't understand why we have this overly complicated way of getting people back into payment again when we already have tools that we can use to get people into payment. So I agree with what you're saying in theory, but feel like if that was the case, then really the six month grace period or announcements communication strategy should have started over the summer with an end date of of January. Sure. And, and it was pretty public every time we signed an executive order in regards to student loan payments. It was it was pretty public and national news when those were going to when those were going to stop. So I you know this is where even that last one, Amy, was they even said this is really the final one. This is it. But it brings me a little bit to there's there's this point in in the documentation that that we reviewed and it talks about students or former students or loan holders who are in certain risk categories that they are going to receive additional outreach efforts. And so these are students who had not graduated and entered repayment in the last 60 months, entered repayment for the first time within the last 36 months, had exited hardship, unemployment, or natural disaster deferment or forbearance in the last 48 months, and any borrower who was ever 90 days delinquent or more in the year prior to the payment pause. So we've identified these four groups that are considered at risk and they need additional outreach. There's additional outreach efforts that the servicers are required to make to students who fall within these four categories. I'm just going to be really honest. I don't understand how we view that we can limit at-risk loan holders to just these four categories. I really feel like every student loan holder at this point is at-risk given the fact that we've gone two years without payments and the fact that the communication strategy 
has not been as robust as it needs to be with loan holders. My personal opinion. I would prefer to see beefed up outreach to every student loan holder. And I understand that that maybe isn't that maybe isn't feasible. I know there's 40 million borrowers, but it just it doesn't feel right that we are limiting. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I think if you're going to give people the benefit of the doubt, you give everybody the benefit of the doubt, right? Yes. Scenarios. So again, there will be groups that are going to be at higher risk for struggling to repay, right? Some of them will have communication challenges. Uh, some of them will have liquidity challenges, but technically everybody is going to have some level of struggle or not. And so you're right. I think if you're going to go out there and you're going to say, hey, we're going to offer this massive, uh, essentially relief to get people in return for getting people back in the payment, uh, why wouldn't you do it for everybody? I think that uh, you know everybody deserves white glove treatment in, in sort of that logic. I think that is the perfect note to wrap this episode on, that wow. all, all of our student loan borrowers deserve white glove treatment when it comes to the restart process and the education process around options and opportunities here as we come into loan loans being becoming due again in January. And we hope that this conversation about some of the some of the items that the department is considering to help students successfully return to repayment was helpful to listeners. Would love to know what your take on this is, or if you've heard something that we have not heard because it feels feels like it's a bit of a web of secrets. Please reach out to Carlo or I, our contact information is available in the show notes. We would love for you to follow our channel and listen to future episodes, share them with your friends, family, loved ones, and coworkers. And if you have a topic that you're interested in discussing, debating, or just pontificating on, we would love to hear from you.